You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for February 27th, 2022, the last Sunday after the Epiphany. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. So the Friday before Valentine's Day, my wife, Jewel, and I spent the night in the city, and the next day, on Saturday, we finally did something which we've been planning to do for basically a year or more. We went to Lower Manhattan to see the Van Gogh, the Immersive Experience exhibit. Now, many of you have already seen this exhibition or you've read about it in the news. Basically, it's a multi-room exhibition of reproductions of Van Gogh's paintings, in particular projections. So the, the main event, as it were, is a massive room. Uh, it's, uh, it's like twice the size of the chapel maybe even three times the size of the chapel. It's not quite as big as the nave, Uh, but it's a room in which all of the walls and the floor are covered with projections of Van Gogh's paintings. And there are lawn chairs and picnic blankets spread out and that kind of thing, and you can kind of lounge around for a while. So you walk in and people are lounging around in the the middle of one of those great Van Gogh landscapes. And I have to say, it, it is quite something to see and to be in, as it were, the landscapes when they're blown up to be that big. You see also the animations that they've done. So they've animated all of Van Gogh's paintings and they have you know, wind blowing through the grain and they've got birds chirping and flying about and they've got wagons who are like making their way down country roads and that kind of thing. And it really is, I mean, it, it's, it, it's quite something. But I have to say, I, I was a little, um, a little disappointed um, I don't mean to be down on the whole thing, and no offense to any of you who, who happen, to, happen to love it. And I know some people I really respect who I really respect their feelings about art, and they really, really loved it. Uh, but something about a room full of projections just took all of the magic out of Van Gogh for me. It left me hungry for the real thing, the genuine article. It left me longing for when Jewel and I saw Starry Night for the first time at the MoMA, or when we saw the almond blossom for the first time at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. The way that you can see Van Gogh's canvas caked up with paint. I mean, the canvases are basically three-dimensional already because there's so much paint on them. Paint which is knotted up into swirling clouds and constellations or ridges and folds in the the almond blossom branches. These variations in texture and depth being signs that these are the canvases which Van Gogh himself touched. This is the paint that he himself mixed on his palette. And I have to say, projections, even really big ones, just seemed flat and lifeless, like limp light compared to the real thing. Now, I know I sound like I'm about six times older than I really am. I preached this at the 8 o'clock service, and somebody on the way out the door said, well, curmudgeon is a title that you earn, and you've got a little more to do to earn it, but you can be an ex-officio curmudgeon at this point. And I was very proud of that. I have to say, I, I looked at Jewel, and as, um, uh, as proof of my curmudgeon, proto-curmudgeon bona fides, I looked at her and I was, 
as we were going down the steps out of the exhibit, I was trying to ask whether or not it was worth the price of admission. <laughs> was that really worth, you know, X number of dollars? And I said, it just makes me want to go uptown to the MoMA and see the real thing. Now, I, I tell you that story because it's an example of something that we actually all do all of the time, regardless of whether you feel that way about the Van Gogh exhibit in Lower Manhattan or not. Um, we distinguish as human beings between things which are more real and less real, more authentic and less authentic, more true to life or less, more richly textured or less. I mean, advertising, for one thing, trades on this human capacity. So marketers bank on the fact that the sound of a can cracking open and the image of cold Coca-Cola spilling gracefully from ice cube to ice cube to ice cube to ice cube to a soundtrack of gug 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 fizz, right? They trade, they rely on the fact that you are going to see that image and you're going to go out and buy the real thing. That the image of the Coca-Cola is going to make you want to drink a real Coca-Cola. They don't assume you're going to be satisfied with the image of it on your television screen. And Christians have for millennia thought that human beings have this ability to discern things which are more real from less real. And that doing so well is crucial to the spiritual life, to the spiritual journey. Christians have said that this capacity to discern things which are more real from less real can wax and wane in the course of your life. And some people seem to be more adept than others at doing so well. Certainly more adept than I am. To continue my ridiculous analogy, sometimes Christians say, we ludicrously think televised Coca-Cola better than the real thing. Sounds crazy, but how would anybody do this? But the examples Christians give are things like when we consider professional accolades and our material wealth to be more lasting and more important than what David Brooks calls the eulogy virtues, the things which people are actually going to talk about at your funeral, not the awards and certificates that sit behind your desk, but rather how honest you were, how brave you were, how kind you were, how faithful you were. And it's something of a cruel trick which our hearts play on us, making us think that our professional accolades or our material wealth is somehow more real than that stuff, when that <laughs> those softer, fuzzier, more important virtues are really what's most real about us. And they are what are going to actually last in the minds and the hearts of those whom we love, last potentially even eternally in heaven. Christians also sometimes ludicrously, excuse me, Christians say human beings sometimes almost ludicrously remember the Coke in a commercial as really having been a Pepsi. Okay, so Christians say that we have the ability to mistake reality, uh, to remember things wrongly. So we might think that the Coke in the commercial was a Pepsi because we prefer the taste of Pepsi. I mean, you would be crazy if you did, but okay. <laughs> or maybe it's because you own Pepsi stock or something, right? And you just remember the commercial differently. 
An example of this, besides my ridiculous analogy, is when we assume the worst of our rival's intentions, but the best of our own. I mean, think about that. That's a, that's a really common knee-jerk reflex, right? To think that our rivals are acting out of shameful or bad intentions, but we somehow are always working out of perfect intentions. I mean, how many people do you know who you can just cleanly discern between their intentions like that? And yet we do. We, we, we think the best of ourselves, and reflexively we think the worst of people who we consider to be our rivals. In any case, human beings, Christians say, experience the world by beholding it. We receive it. And beholding the world well and truly is actually difficult. And we may even be reprogrammed by the fall of humanity to do so badly, to do so selfishly, self-interestedly, as when we mistake the Coke for a Pepsi because we own Pepsi stock or something like that. And to interact well with the world, to do or to be good in the world, Christians say, we need first to see the world rightly, see it accurately, behold it well, as it is, and not as we would merely wish it to be. And that's part of what's going on in the story of the Transfiguration. So the, the actual sequence of events is easy enough to get down. Figuring out what they mean is somewhat harder, at least it has been for me. So Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James, go up a mountain, traditionally identified as Mount Tabor. And there, Jesus begins to glow. He basically turns into a human glow stick. Luke says, And while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. So the disciples see Moses and Elijah, who represent, respectively, the law and the prophets, the Torah, and the Nevi'im in the Hebrew Bible. You see two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to Jesus, and it says they saw his glory. Now what's going on here is that the glory of God, the inestimable, super-resplendent beauty of God, shines out from Jesus, radiates from him. It's the same glory, the same beauty which the book of Exodus says, rested atop Mount Sinai in those famous stories about Moses when he would go up, as in our first reading, to the top of Mount Sinai to commune with God and famously to receive the law. And this glory, which Exodus says rested once on Mount Sinai, was covered by a cloud for six days in one part of the Exodus narrative. And lo and behold, Jesus' glory is also covered by a cloud. A cloud from which comes the voice of the one he calls Father, naming him for Peter, James, and John, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. So this much I've, I've always loved about the story of the transfiguration, or I've, maybe not always, but for a very long time, have loved about the transfiguration. It's a confirmation of who Jesus really is, of his divine identity, in the way that I myself have most often met 
God, which is through experiences of overwhelming, otherworldly beauty. That's how I most often perceive, meet, experience God. And it wasn't until Reverend Elizabeth suggested it in our lectionary podcast, Revved Up for Sunday, that I realized that the transfiguration is equally a transfiguration of Jesus and a transfiguration of the disciples' sight, a transfiguration of their ability to perceive him. Because before, during, and after the transfiguration event itself, Jesus is the same person, as it were. He's the eternal son of the Father the whole time. It's just that on top of the mountain, they can see him as the eternal son of the Father. They finally see him rightly as who he really is. And part of how this miracle works is that Jesus is praying while it takes place, and the disciples are themselves in something of a meditative, contemplative state. It says that they're in that in-between liminal space between wakefulness and sleep. You know that place where you're not quite awake, but you're not quite asleep either. It's a place of things like lucid dreams and things like that. The text says, though weighed down with sleep, since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory. So it seems to me it's both the case that Jesus is radiating the glory of God in a particularly clear way on top of the mountain, but also that the disciples have the eyes in that moment to see it to really behold Jesus' glory clearly and see him for who he really is. And not perhaps as they would like him to be. They see that he is the eternal son of the Father given for the redemption of the whole world. And not perhaps as who they wished he would be, who they will wish him to be. Maybe they're ticket out of Roman oppression or something like that. Whatever it is that they see and they realize, it blows their minds. And it shocks them into silence. So that in those days, Luke says, they tell no one any of what they had seen. Peter, James, and John spend years, potentially, suspended in that precious silence which sometimes descends between an exquisitely beautiful piece of live music and the uproarious applause which follows. Have you guys been to concerts like that? Where the music is so sublime, it ends and there's silence. As though everyone is, we're hesitating to applaud. And we're trying desperately not to cough and ruin it for everybody else. That's where these disciples spend years, okay? I don't think they, they were, I don't think they didn't tell anybody because they were ashamed or because they were afraid or because they were trying to keep a secret. They didn't tell anybody because silence is the only proper reaction. It's the only right reaction to beholding something as overwhelmingly, otherworldly, beautiful as God. That silence, the silence of rapture, the silence of rapture is the glory of Christians, it is the heart of our account of religious experience. It is the heart, I believe, of our religion. But it does, I admit, seem a little flimsy, a little ephemeral. It seems to me it's not real enough 
to stand up to what we have all beheld in the last week, which is the resumption of war in Europe. Right, art, beauty, silence, none of these seem real enough to confront missile strikes in Kiev or people displaced from their homes nor even the less public but nonetheless real conflicts which I know so many of us in this room and on the stream and elsewhere face. Conflicts at our kitchen tables, conflicts within diseased bodies, conflicts within diseased minds. But conflict I mean, really, beauty just, I did think about that. I'm like, gosh, that's really what I've got to say on Sunday? The best I've got for these people is to suggest they go look at a Van Gogh painting or to listen to a piece of music. But I have to remind myself that the, um, sometimes the things which seem less real are actually the most real. And I do think that beauty has something to do to intervene in conflict of different kinds, of all kinds in our world. Because any scene of human discernment and action depends for its just right resolution on seeing it clearly, fearlessly, for what it is, not for what we want it to be. To see people as they are not as we want for them to be. To see situations as they are, not as we want for them to be. To see ourselves as we are, not as we want ourselves to be. The philosopher Iris Murdoch suggested that prayer, as well as attention to works of art, like pieces of music or dramas or paintings or what have you, whatever is your thing, all of these are forms of contemplative attention where we attend to things as they are. We attend to God as God really is in prayer. We attend to the thing itself. We attend to the painting, to the music as it really is in art. We attend to the glory of these things. And there's something about these practices of contemplative attention that make it easy for us to get out of our way so that we see them well. They take us out of ourselves in rapture so that we can behold the thing as it really is, not as we might want it to be. And that's what happens for the disciples in the transfiguration. They see Jesus for who Jesus really is. And I think it's what happens for us when we see ourselves or the world or God for who they really are. We get out of our way to touch what is most real in our world. And so as this season of Epiphany comes to a close, and we stand on the verge not just of the wilderness of Lent, but potentially a wilderness of civilization, I do actually believe, flimsy and irrelevant as it might sound, that we could all do with more of the grace which is embedded in experiences as sublime as the transfiguration and as ordinary as a vase of flowers. And it has become the, really the only prayer that I seem to be able to 
generate these days about all that's going on in our world other than Lord have mercy. It's become my prayer for the people of Ukraine, the people of Russia, for us, for all of us, indeed for all of creation. That the Lord might have mercy and also that we would be given the grace to see. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.